0: Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. everybody welcome to tax Tuesday we'll give you a second to come on in and uh if you're looking for tax Tuesday you're in the right place we were going to do it tax Monday but then we said no we're going to just do them on Tuesdays (sighs) let's see my bar disappeared you like that yeah (laughs) I love zoom all right so if you're looking for tax Tuesday you're in the right spot let me know where you're from right now and I'll introduce who we are and all that good stuff but I want to figure out where everybody is in the country as I can't see anything else. There's Mobile, Alabama. You know, my dad is from Mobile. Hey there, just showed roll up. Tide. Was a, roll Tide. My dad actually went to Auburn. So it's War Eagle. Oh, okay. uh, Tampa, Florida, San Diego, Godfrey. There's somebody from Canada, Maryland, Seattle, Phoenix, Detroit, Salem, Delaware, San Diego. Right, we got a lot of folks on. Don't get nervous. All right. Well, if you're looking for <laughs> Roger Paris. Tacoma, Washington. Oh my gosh. We have an office up there on Broadway. David in North Carolina, Las Vegas, that's where we're sitting today, Maine, et cetera. So uh, my name is Toby Mathis, and I'm joined by-
1: Um, Ian Hansen.
0: And Ian is filling in for Jeff, who, somebody says, Jeff looks great today. You grew all your hair back, Jeff.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to lose some though. (laughs) Uh, Jeff got
0: married, and he's he's out on a cruise ship somewhere, so- uh, He's having some fun, he looked good. Okay. Yeah. Come on, he looked good. <laughs> Jeff said, uh, we miss him. Oh, there we go. We got some Hawaii in the house, some San Antonio. You had a lot of people thinking that you look good. So uh, Ian's one of our CPAs. What, what's your exact title?
1: Tax manager or something like that? I don't know.
0: He's the tax changes right. all the time. It's so. That's right there. <laughs> Somebody says, I'm getting an echo. It's because Ian and I sound exactly alike. No, uh, you better check your your audio, all right. Yeah, so uh, Jeff or Ian is the tax man. I'm going to say Jeff hundred times today. Ian's a tax manager here out of our Las Vegas office and does absolutely does a great job. Uh, so we're coming in. Somebody says Casual Tuesdays. <laughs> it, it, we have collars on. That's pretty good. All right, Tax Tuesday rules. Ask live uh, Q and A. You can go right into the chat and make a comment, or you can ask a question under the question and answer. And we have a whole bunch of folks here to help you. We have Dana, we have uh, Elliot. We have, gosh, how many people were on? We had Troy, we had Christos, or did we have Christos?
1: I think he was, Dutch is on there, Pio's on there.
0: There's Dutch, See, they're, they're they're waiting for you to crash and burn. So they're all watching Ian to see whether he, he goofs up on something so that they make fun of him. Trisha, there's Patty, we got Matthew. My God, I've never seen this many. And, <laughs> Thank you. We have, a, we have a team on to help you. If you have a question today, this is a good day to ask it because apparently a big chunk of the tax departments come on to watch you. And if you have questions throughout the week, by all means, ask it by emailing us at tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. And if you ha- need a very detailed response to your specific issue, sometimes we ask that you please become a client first. Otherwise we just ask answer general questions, no problem. We don't play around here with that. We just give free, we dispense free tax information so that uh, we can help people. We always say we're fast, fun, and educational. Wanna give back and help educate because we know how annoying taxes can be. Questions today, we'll just read through them, what we're gonna be answering. How can I eliminate paying capital gains? I recently sold my rental property because I needed the cash to pay off a divorce settlement. What are my options? What is the best way to ensure I receive the necessary tax deductions, mortgage interest, property taxes, 121 exclusions, not a deduction, uh, et cetera, if I purchase a house as an owner-occupant with direct financing from the seller? Should I use a third-party company that prepares my monthly bill statements? Which is better, 1031 exchange with limited time and capital availability or paying capital gains with unlimited time available and no restrictions on capital? Good one. After receiving a sizable amount of money, how soon after do taxes need to be paid? That's actually a really good question, we never get to see. Uh, If I register my vehicle under my company name, is this tax deductible? If my spouse qualifies as real estate professional, can we activate passive losses generated from our investments in real estate in a real estate syndicator, probably means syndication, multifamily apartments, to offset tax liability on other sources of active income? Is there a specific write-off for evicted tenants? I own several rental properties and between four evicted tenants, I have about $20,000 in collections with a collection company that is unable to collect anything from them. After a certain amount of time, is this debt no longer recoverable? Can you explain the tax benefit of selling a stock for a loss and then rebuying the stock at a lower price? If you put money in a pre-IPO, how is it taxed? Is it true that it may not be taxed at all depending on the amount of time it's in there? Interesting. When it comes to business expenses, do you have to provide the IRS receipts or can you provide your business bank account statements? In regards to food expenses, does it need to be food purchased from restaurants or can it be food purchased at a grocery store? When it comes to these write-offs, does the IRS differentiate between the two? So uh, we've got some good questions, really good questions. If somebody should, should the first question involve divorce if Jeff is on a honeymoon? (laughs) John, that's not very nice, but yeah, we take them all. (laughs) John's in trouble. All right, so Ian, Mm -hmm. how can I eliminate paying capital gains? I recently sold my rental property because I needed to cash to pay off a divorce settlement. What are my options?
1: Well, if you would have asked me uh, before you sold it, I would have told you one option would be the uh, 1031 exchange. However, that needs to be done before you uh, sell the first property. Um, so that's off the table. Other one you could look at is doing a qualified opportunity zone that will defer the taxes up to 10 years
0: ish. No, actually, uh, the qualified opportunity zone is recognized in, it's it's as though you sold the property on 1231 2026. So you'd have to pay tax on it for 2020 in okay. 2027. Yes, yeah. this one, time. Yep. So the other one is, yeah, the 10 year is the increase in value on the actual opportunity zone fund you wouldn't have to pay tax, I mean, yeah, it's a deferral. This one, I always, I always find it's interesting. When you see capital gains, you can offset your capital gains with capital losses. That's number one. So you look around and see, do I have any capital loss carry forward? People have them on their returns. You don't remember losing all the money. So let's say that you have a situation where in 1999, you just crashed and burned and you're still carrying forward all those capital losses. Look for those, please. Like they're probably sitting in there. One or the other crashes? You sold in 2008 when it was 38% down and you freaked out and you sold all your stock and then you forgot that you couldn't write it off. It might just be out there. Uh, The other thing is, like I wish we could have talked to you before you sold because I would have said borrow against it. You don't have to pay tax when you borrow, take a loan out on something. But in this situation, I think you're absolutely right. In order to avoid the capital gains, there's a way to defer it. You're not gonna eliminate it, but you can defer it Otherwise, it's going to involve other capital assets. You're going to have to harvest loss. Or if you're a real estate professional, you could accelerate some depreciation perhaps on another property and offset it because it's going to be ordinary loss. Kind of sucks to use against capital gains. So it would probably mm-hmm. offset. Would it offset your ordinary income first if I did that? I think I get to choose, right?
1: Yeah. Well, the calculation is going to take the ordinary income first before it does the capital gain. So
0: yeah. So Basically, we could just look at your total tax bill and say, hey, capital gains aren't bad. Like you might be getting taxed at 20%. Maybe, well, if you're 20%, you're 23.8. Yeah, the net investment income tax. But maybe we look and we say, how do we offset some of your taxes as opposed to the capital gains? How do I eliminate paying taxes on that gain? Might be a better way to put it and say, hey, maybe we look at other assets you have and accelerate the depreciation on it.
1: Right, and you're most likely gonna be in the 15% bracket in this situation. I'm guessing you've had the rental for longer than a year. So it's probably gonna have you around the 24% bracket. Mm-hmm. And then if you do bump up to the 20% long-term, you're probably gonna be around the 35% bracket. So either way, you'd probably be looking more at getting your ordinary income down as opposed to your capital income.
0: Yep, yeah. So what Ian said in English is you get bigger deduction. I'm just teasing. You. Somebody says, hey, don't you only have 180 days to get into a qualified opportunity zone? you have 180 days from either the capital, the sale or January 1st, if it's a 1231 uh, property, right? So if if we have a sale of a real estate, wouldn't we be looking at potentially January 1st?
1: Yeah, and the reason they do that is most of the opportunity zones are gonna be through partnerships. So you're waiting on your K1s. So they're looking to give people the most time possible to figure out what the gain is.
0: Yeah, and then it is two parts. You have the qualified opportunity zone, fund, which you have to put the money into, the fund has to invest that in qualified opportunity zone property. And it's a threshold. It's like 90% within 180 days. So technically on this scenario, we could probably be putting stuff into an opportunity zone more than a year after the the, the transaction. So we'd set up the fund right away, like get it before June so that you can defer it and then we'd be looking at the investment and making sure you're in an opportunity zone investment. But I don't know, do you, are you high up on uh, opportunity zones? Do you like them or do you think that's more of a pain? Not as much. Yeah, would,
1: 1031 would've been a better option.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, what is the best way to ensure I receive the necessary tax deductions? Most likely the mortgage interest deduction, the property tax. If I purchase a house as an owner occupant. So you're doing, somebody's doing owner financing to you, you're buying it from an owner. Should I use a third-party company that prepares my monthly bill statements?
1: Generally, the person that is selling you the house should be issuing you a 1098 at the end of the year. Uh, it's required for anyone that pays over $600 of interest. They should have some sort of amortization schedule that'll break down the, the principal and interest for the payments each year so you know which portion's actually deductible. The principal is not deductible, it's the return of the liability, so only the interest is deductible. Uh then property taxes, they usually come through on the 1098 as well. I know like California is a good state that doesn't um, usually have those on there. So you'll have to go check the uh, county, mm-hmm. the properties in to pull those. What do you do if the, what do you do if the person won't give you a, a statement and they're
0: just like being turds, they're just not giving it to you? Uh,
1: you're going to have to have the calculation yourself. So generally you're going to want a bank statement showing the uh, amount that's being paid out. And then- um, So it doesn't kill
0: you if they don't give it a- No. Hey, hey Patty, she's texting or uh, chatting. You gotta put the suite number in. <laughs> I saw an address. <laughs> Having fun. Anyway, so you, it, as long as you incurred it, you can put it. Like we don't have to have the document. I actually did this once. I actually bought from a guy that had a, it was a 2% interest rate. And I bought a house when Vegas was just crashing and I couldn't resist. And we just tossed it into a land trust and I paid the mortgage statement. Mm-hmm. So he was getting the the 1098 from the mortgage company. And then I would just do the same thing, report it. And we used a third party, they don't do anything. All they do is collect the money, but they don't give you any documents. That's not gonna fix it for you. So you're just gonna have to do it. (laughs) Sorry, I'm watching the chat as it comes in too. Uh, Anything else you could say on that? Uh, No, that's about it. Yeah, and then the 121 exclusion, you don't need a document for that. That's just, did you live in it for, as your primary residence for two out of the five years? And technically, if you were a a tenant, so if you bought this as an owner occupant and you did it on a lease option, you could actually use the time that you were in it to qualify as well. It's kind of weird. You have to own it when you sell, but you had to occupy it for two out of the five years as a a primary residence. It's kind of weird. Just kind of goofy things. You don't need anything from them for that. All right, this is very subjective, but I like subjective questions because I like hearing everybody's opinion. Which is better? And By the way, guys, if you wanna play along at home, in chat, tell me what you guys think of this question, which one you would rather do. Would you rather have a 1031 exchange with limited time and capital availability? So a 1031 exchange is when you swap real estate and you have 45 days to identify replacement properties, 180 days to close from your closing date. So you're on the clock, you got six months to close, you have the 1031. So would you rather do that or would you rather just pay the capital gains and have an unlimited time. What do you think?
1: Well, I think the first question you have to ask is what brackets are you in? Because if you have no income, uh, you can have up to about 80,000 in long-term capital gains. So if you're selling your rental and that's the only thing you have and you get about 60K capital gains, you're not gonna pay any tax. So at that point, you might as well just take the cash out. And then if you do decide to go buy another property, then you can do that.
0: Yeah, we're seeing some good ones. 1031, if there's a property to exchange to mm-hmm. pay the capital gains because within the 10% tax bracket. So you got, you got to look at it. It all depends. So you guys are starting to become uh, somebody said, I'd rather have Ian answer the question. What did I do? Uh. David's like, you're harshing on me already. 1031, 1031 is if, if the gain is enough. Yeah, everybody's now saying it depends. They become CPAs. Yeah, you learn the secret to making millions of dollars. You become a CPA and say, it depends. Somebody says, what do you think of deferred sales trusts? Okay, there we go. Now we're, th- we're starting to think, all right, so we have an exchange. And I'm worried about like, I don't wanna be in a situation where I have to force myself to find a property, especially in this marketplace, right? But let's just say that I wanna recognize the income over a longer period of time. Maybe I don't even need the money. I'm just saying, I just don't wanna get killed on the tax. So maybe it is somebody that's in a higher tax bracket and you have a few choices. I could do the deferred sales trust, not a huge fan of trying to do the monetized sales trust. I'd rather just do a a, a typical installment sale and recognize and get the money over time, mm-hmm. you know, and then get that property back. But you could also do a qualified opportunity zone. You could also look and see if you have other capital losses to offset. Maybe you're a real estate professional and we have the ability to accelerate a bunch of depreciation that's gonna cause us to go even negative as far as income so that we could offset that way. It's interesting also that like on recapture, it's not just capital gains, the recapture's at your rate too, capped at 25%, so we have to look at all that. Or, hey, I just want the cash. Mm -hmm. I just want the cash. And I'm gonna say what I said earlier, which is, if you just want the cash, you you should consider borrowing against it at these really ridiculously low interest rates and keeping the property. Because the appreciation on real estates, it's been like 20% (laughs) on residential, and in a lot of places it's higher. So that way you don't lose the appreciation and you're paying pretty low. Somebody says between a 1031 and, and taking capital gains, I choose the latter because I always make sure my taxable income is below, below 80,000. Okay. So there you go. What about if you use the capital gain to pay off debt? Well, if you have debt, obviously, I mean, you could always borrow cheap money. So let's say I have real estate. I, you've been working with clients. Mm-hmm. Have you seen anybody, about what interest rate do they pay if they're getting lines of credit against their properties?
1: Uh, I'm not sure about the lines of credit, but <clears throat> most people have been refinancing for the 15 years, being in about 2%, and then uh, 30 have been about 3%. I think pretty much every client I've seen that's had multiple rentals has at least refinanced one property in 2020. So. Yeah, so let's think about this. So you, you pull money out at 2%, pay off your debt that
0: way, keep the property. So Maria, yeah, you're talking about using the capital again. The capital, like when I sell a property, here's the deal. I'm losing about 8% of it because of closing costs and, and, and fees, typical. Now, I know some of you guys are gonna you know, sell it yourself, but you don't get that back. That's off of your principal, And you're paying the capital gains. When you add those two things up, it could be a pretty size, it could be 30%. And so now I'm living off of the 70% that's left. That's what I'm gonna have to grow. And it takes really big growth to make up that 30% chunk that we lost. So again, I like borrowing because the transaction cost might be 1%. I have a really low interest rate. That asset's continuing to appreciate, historically, greater than 4%. Like if we go back and look at real estate over time, it's more than 4%. It recently, it's been double digits. S&P, same thing historically, it's like 11%. Since the 50s, it's over seven. And in the last 10 years, it's 13%. So you're, you're better off, in my mind, keeping the asset and borrowing against it and avoiding the tax. If you have to sell it, like, hey, I really wanna sell it and go get something else and you have something else that you're targeting, then I can see 1031. But I've seen so many people uh, kind of hosed on transactions because somebody drags them close to that deadline and then starts demanding terms because they know you have a taxable inclusion if you don't get closed. So, uh, it could be interesting. And in, somebody says Charlotte, assuming capital gain is significant, yeah, you have to look and do your calculations. So you get your little pencil out. Talk to guys like Ian. You say, Ian, what's it going to be?
1: And one thing on the ten thirty ones, to make sure you're looking at um, the cash you're going to get out and what you're going to put back in, and then same thing with the, the loans. How much you're going to pay off? How much you're going to acquire? Because that's going to be part of your calculation yep. uh, to determine if you get boot or not out of this. Yep. So. Oh, boot. Now,
0: now we're boot, talking man.
1: about. Yeah. So it, yeah.
0: So if, if you pay off debt and you take the cash, that's taxable too.
1: Yeah, long story short, before you do a 1031, make sure you talk to your tax people.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you guys run scenarios? Yeah. Yes, we can. So then, now we're not guessing. There's no more, it depends. You get to go and say, that one. All right, we like our accountants. After receiving a sizable amount of money, how soon after do taxes need to be paid?
1: Okay, so we were just actually talking about this before we came in. So in terms of the safe harbor for your uh, taxes that need to be paid in, usually it's 90% of the current year or either 100% of last year's if you're under 150000 of income or 10 percent of last year's if you're over 150% of income. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be like your payment at the end of the year. That's going to be your tax liability. So it'll be the line on the 1040 on page two that says tax. Um, so you're going to look at that and then you're going to multiply it by those numbers I just said. And that's going to tell you how much you need to be paid in before January 15th.
0: So... There's only one thing I would say is, is whenever I see after receiving a sizable amount of money, I'd say, what's the source? What kind of money is it? Is it like, it could be, I got a life insurance settlement, somebody passed. Okay, how soon do taxes need to be paid? They don't, because it's not taxable. Hey, I got a sizable amount of money. I got a gift. Okay, what do I have to pay? Nothing, it's a gift. So we have to look and see what kind of income it is. How long to like, what if it's capital gains? like we sold GameStop stock. Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> hey, stop that. <laughs> um, uh, it could be, you have some capital loss yeah. and now we got a bunch of money that came in. But what if, what if you're one of the people that had the big losses from 2008? We had a, quite a few clients that, you know, they, they did that buy high, sell low thing and they would have these carry forwards. We'd inherit them from somebody else and you'd look and you'd say like, they would always say, oh yeah, I lost money, but you'd never see the carry forward. Mm-hmm. The accounts didn't track it. So two or three years later, they lose it. Then you go back and you see, oh, wait a second. You had this carry forward two, 300 grand. We need to use that, right?
1: Yeah, so you'll wanna look at all those. And then um, for the estimates, there's two ways you can do it. Either you split up between the four quarters. So it's gonna be due April, June, September, and January 15th, mm-hmm. or your other option is you can annualize the income. So that, a good instance of that would be, let's say you had a massive capital gain in the fourth quarter. So instead of paying you know, quarters one, two, and three, when you don't have the cash to pay it, you can make an election on the tax form to spread that income to the fourth quarter and pay the estimates for January 15th as opposed yeah. to the
0: other three. And what he is talking about is when is the tax due? Mm-hmm. Technically taxes are due when things are earned, mm-hmm. correct? So like if this was in the fourth quarter, like we're in the fourth quarter, in the quarter, don't even like employment taxes quarters aren't three month, three month, three month, three month. It's like three month, two month, three month, four month goofy but uh you're supposed to be paying it whatever quarter you technically get it in depending on what your taxes and it's all income right it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. it could be dividends right capital gains salaries business anything that hits technically you have this tax liability right there so how soon after do taxes need to be paid well it depends on the type of income It depends on how much you've already paid. It depends on if you have losses. It depends on a lot of different factors, whether it qualifies to do a qualified opportunity zone, whether it's, whether the source of the income is even taxable, all that stuff comes into play. I love these types of questions because it really does give Mm -hmm. us the ability to kind of say, like, it's not an, it depends. It's a, that's a very open-ended question. Speaking of open-ended questions, this one's actually pretty straightforward. If I register a vehicle under my company name, is this tax deductible? What
1: do you think? If it's a hundred percent business use, yes. If not, you gotta figure out what percentage it is and you would be able to take that on. Yeah,
0: so the, the, the fact, like how
1: important is it, company name versus you own it? So yeah, generally you don't wanna put a vehicle in your company's name if it's not gonna be solely used for business. If it's gonna be like a personal vehicle you have, they'll say like you do real estate on the side and you're taking clients out to do houses, Generally, you're gonna want to take a mileage log and then you'll either take the mileage expense, whichever the rate is for each year, it's generally around 55 cents or so per mile, or you could uh, take your total mileage for the year, Well, first divide the business mileage by the total mileage, and then you can Mm -hmm. multiply it by your actual expenses and figure out which one's better. Yeah, now, uh, so let's just say it's Joe
0: Schmo, ABC company, they have a little S corp and they're gonna use it 50-50. Maybe they're doing, let's say they're a realtor. Would you buy it in the company?
1: I would not. And then you to have to worry about commercial insurance, getting the loan under the company's name. You
0: just hit one of the big yeah. ones. It may yeah. be more expensive. Once you toss it in the company, it's no longer a personal use vehicle. They expect you to be allowing employees and other things to use it. And it's kind of like a rental car. They kind of know mm-hmm. how people are gonna treat that car. The insurance companies probably have stats on everything, but it's more expensive. If you do get into an accident, guess who gets sued? The company there's huge cases where somebody was driving a company vehicle personally, and the company still gets sued. Like it was a, somebody in the family and driving down and, and, you know, and harm somebody significantly, the company gets wrapped in. It's almost always better just to own that thing individually. Now, if you own it, and let's say I'm the company, can I reimburse you for the depreciation and things like that on that property? Yeah, if, if, if you take
1: the actual expenses, yeah.
0: If I do the actual expenses, actual expenses, we have to calculate oil changes, gas, maintenance, I don't just repairs, get- Repairs,
1: insurance, et cetera. And the uh, the mileage expense that the IRS comes up with actually has a depreciation component in it. So they look at the average cost of vehicles plus all that. So there is actually a portion that's for depreciation in there.
0: Yeah, so I, I like to say, somebody says lease it back to the company. Maria, not so much, just because there's, there's two sides and I don't mean to just disagree with you, but if I lease it, now I have a taxable event coming to me and then I'm playing, all right, is it the company provided me a lease vehicle, now I have lease inclusion in my income. So for example, if I lease a vehicle for a thousand dollars a month as a company and then I give it to Ian to drive around personally, he now has income of wages of a thousand dollars a month, subject to withholding, income tax, Old age disability survivors Medicare. We don't like that. Like that's the part that accountants sometimes screw up, where they don't realize that if I'm if I have a vehicle and it's seventy five percent personal, twenty five percent business, and the business is paying for everything and it writes it off, I now get seventy five percent of the lease value. The IRS publishes a chart, says here's the lease value of your vehicle, and uh, I'm going to have a taxable event. It's kind of like if I went to an employee and said, Hey, you're the greatest employee ever. Here's a new Corvette that's taxable to them. Let's say it's a hundred grand. That's a hundred thousand dollars of taxable income to that person. And they may not even want a Corvette.
1: Would you drive a Corvette? For 30,000 probably, yeah. You're such a cat.
0: They're like a hundred grand now.
1: If you're you're putting on my W2, I'll take it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But would you buy yourself a car? No. no. How many guys out there have been like, liking the Corvette? I have like, friend of mine bought a Corvette and I was like, you're not 50 yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that's horrible. Nobody's like everybody. I'll take the Corvette. See some of these guys like the Corvettes. They look like spaceships. They're pretty amazing. I just know I would, I would last about two days before you'd find me in a ditch somewhere. Cause they, they're just like rocket ships.
1: I'd probably be arrested for reckless driving, but <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. You gotta be careful with those. They're like, they're beautiful. They are beautiful in somebody else's garage. So I go, that's a really great car you got there. You want to drive it? No, the voice has one. Who's the voice? Oh, no, Patty. I know who you're talking about, right? If my spouse qualifies as a real estate professional, can we activate passive losses generated from our investments in a real estate syndication, multifamily to offset tax liability on other sources of active income? What say you?
1: Well, if you're gonna aggregate them in, then yes, uh, you would be able to make those losses non-passive, so you can take them this year. However, that wouldn't actually activate anything that was a carryover from last year. So if you have any uh, passive activity loss carryovers, you activating it this year would not activate those. Yeah, so a passive
0: loss can only offset passive income, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're a real estate professional, it doesn't change the nature of the income. It just says it's an exception to the passive activity loss rules. So typically rent is passive unless, you're a real estate professional, in which case then it's just
1: not passive.
0: Not passive, And then, then you have to still do one other thing. You have to materially participate. So like I could, Ian and I could go out and we could start up a pizza shop. I always use pizza shop. Mm-hmm. I like pizza. So they're still talking about Corvettes, by the way, like on the chat. Um, so we start up a pizza shop and I say, Ian, you're the better pizza maker. I'm much better at going on vacation. And so I put money in, he puts money in. And the pizza shop makes $100,000. We're 50, 50 owners. We each get 50,000. Ian's is active. He has to pay self-employment tax.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My portion, passive, just like rents. That's what we're looking at. So we have these things called passive act- activity losses. So here you are a real estate professional. You have losses coming from the real, real estate syndication. And it matters whether it's an LLC or limited partnership for the this, this second portion, mm-hmm. as to whether you materially participate, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that you have a syndication, it kicks down $10,000 of loss. You're a real estate professional. Everything else you have, you manage to have uh, zero income. You've offset all your income. Do you get to take the $10,000 loss from that syndication? Give you an NOL, but... Yeah, yeah. but you would get the loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying it, net operating loss, but yeah, absolutely. So being the real estate professional just means your real estate activities are no longer passive. They're no longer subject to the passive activity loss rules. If so long as we have to do one other thing. We have to elect to aggregate all of our activities, right? Group all of them. So that's cool. Yep. All right, let's go to the next one. Is there a specific write-off for tenants? I own several rental properties between four evicted tenants. I have about $20,000 in collections with the collections company that is unable to collect anything from them after a certain amount of time is this debt no longer recoverable
1: okay so from the tax standpoint you're most likely going to be on cash basis so in terms of getting a deduction for what you didn't collect you're not going to be able to receive that the only way you would be able to is if you're on accrual basis which essentially you would be recognizing income as it should be earned not as you receive it so if that's the case and they determine this is uncollectible then you'd be able to write that off as a deduction
0: Nobody knows what cash and accrual means. So
1: cash is, cash accounting is, I get cash, I pick it up as income. Accrual is, I do the work, but I don't get the cash, I'm gonna pick it up as income anyway.
0: Yep, so if I do work for Ian, and let's say that I invoice him $2,000, under cash, I haven't received any income, there's nothing. Under accrual, I have to pick up the $2,000 because I invoiced him $2,000. In rental, do you have anybody that does accrual? in rental?
1: don't think so. And if they do, I usually tell them to stop and For this
0: very reason, right? Because you're owed 20 grand. You never recognized it as income. Therefore, you get no deduction. It's going to be a big zero. If you were accrual, you would have recognized $20,000. Now I can't collect it. I get a $20,000 deduction. I'm at zero. If I loan money to Ian, I'm part of my business and I loan him $20,000, I didn't get a deduction. I had to pay tax on the 20 when I made it. Now I invest it. He doesn't pay me back. I have to show that I've exhausted my abilities to collect it. So usually it means suing him, trying to go to court, trying to go to collections. It's all you gotta do. Then I would get to write it off, but I have to be in that business. So it gets a little tough. So the answer to this question, then you'd say, sorry, but you're not gonna get it.
1: Yeah, you won't get anything for it, but also you didn't pick it up as income. 99.99% of individuals are gonna be on cash basis.
0: All right, I'm gonna go back to this previous question. And the reason is because there's actually somebody says, in regards to the real estate syndication, I'm in a similar situation. My wife and I have a partnership. I am 90% passive, she is 10% active. This year, I lost $20,000 in a syndication in which I invested in my own name. Can we take the deduction? So the, the question, Amanda, would be, what type of syndication? Was it a real estate syndication? And what type of activity are you and your wife doing? It sounds like it's real estate. Oh, you know, I guess it is real yeah. estate from the syndication.
1: But if you're a real estate professional, does it matter? Mm. Uh, she, oh, yes, she is. So if, if one of you is an REP, uh, real estate professional, then you both are. Yep. So, so you so, combine them together.
0: So your real estate activities are no longer passive. So long as you meet the 750 hours, more than 50% of your personal time, just one spouse has to meet that prong. Mm-hmm. So prong one is 750 hours in, any real estate business that you own a greater than 5% share of. So I could be construction. I could be development. I could be a property management. It could be other properties. And yes, real estate. She is a real estate professional. I am not. That is fine. So what he's saying is it came down in my name. So it doesn't matter. You are automatically a real estate professional. If you qualify, one spouse is a real estate professional and together, together, all of you, both of you, all of you, both of you, materially participate on your group real estate activities you have to make an aggregation election so you have to treat all of your real estate activities including that syndication as one big real estate activity now you don't have to worry about passive losses see now we have happy people all right so we already talked about the tenants the one thing i'd say on the tenants by the way is if you were owed back rent i don't know if you can get it now but when they're in there we were pretty successful at getting the government money for paying for back rents. The hardest thing was getting the tenants to sign things or come to the door half the yeah. time. Sometimes that they think you're about to toss them out and you're like, no, no, no. I want to help you get the funds. I want to help me help you, right? I don't want to throw you out. That's a pain. I have to repaint and do the carpeting, and everything. It doesn't do anybody any good. So we want to do that. Something Somebody says, but wait, 90% of that income is exposed to FICA, correct? No. This is just for the loss. Real estate professional is just about losses. You don't have to worry about FICA because it is still a non-passive real estate activity. It's still not passive. It's a non-passive real estate activity. It's not subject to uh, self-employment tax. Right,
1: to give you the technical thing, the self-employment tax is usually on uh, box one, which is the ordinary income. So it'd still be listed as uh, real estate in box two on the K-1. Yep. So you are good. See? All right, good. Can you explain
0: the tax benefit of selling a stock for a loss and then rebuying the stock at a lower
1: price? So, this would be considered harvesting losses. <clears throat> so, uh, let's say I've got about 25K of capital gains this year, and I got a couple stocks that are showing about a $2,000 or let's just say $5,000 loss right now as it stands. I could sell those now, take that 5K loss. So, I'll bring my bottom line down to 20 as a gain. And then after 30 days, so day 31, I can go back and buy that stock.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is the wash sale mm-hmm. loss rule, right? This is where you, you hear about accountants say, wash sale, it's a wash sale loss. So when you take a loss on any security, if you buy that security or a substantially similar security, it's so like if, if you sell uh, Exxon at a loss and you buy Chevron, you might be in trouble, right? right? You get to take that loss. Somebody says the voice, you guys are still having... There's still we're about like three questions behind on the chat. I, I think they, somebody else asked another question about the reimbursement. There was government money under the CARES Act that went into helping tenants who could not make payment. So what you do is you look at landlord assistance, tenants not paying, or something like that, and uh, you can get it All right. So going back to this, so we sell a stock for loss, rebuy it later. We just have to wait that 30 day window, or you could buy what an index or something, if you're worried about the stock market, like, hey, I don't wanna miss out. Here's the interesting thing. Cryptos are not subject to the loss rule. So crypto, you could sell your crypto and you get a capital loss Mm -hmm. and offset capital gains. So, and vice versa, if if you've made money in crypto, you may wanna sell it and buy it right back because there's no wash sale gain rule. So if I have a stock, sell it at a loss, wait 31 days, buy it back, I could actually use that loss against my other stock, Mm -hmm. against sale of property, sale of crypto, any capital asset, right? I could use that. And Jennifer, it's 30 calendar days. Yeah. Yeah. All right, since crypto is considered like property, can crypto gains from staking offset passive losses from real estate losses? Assuming I'm not a real estate professional. So now crypto is a capital, if you're staking, you're making active income, I believe. When you're staking, you're actually using a computer and they're paying you to do the staking to verify transactions. I'm assuming that's what it is, uh, Tarun. If you are mining, that is also active. So your gains and those would be ordinary income and your capital losses would only offset up to $3,000 a year. And so we just have to make sure that we're looking at it. So I believe staking, pretty sure staking is ordinary income. Do you know off the top of your head? I think so, it is, yeah. Yeah, staking and mining are ordinary income. So it's not capital. Once you get it, then any gains or loss from that point are capital. So there. Okay, we get to go to another one. If you put money in a pre-IPO, how is it taxed? Is it true that you may not be taxed at all, depending on the amount of time that it's in there?
1: The money you put in should just be your basis in it. So might be referring to like an 83B election, which essentially is you would treat the taxable event would be, or let me rephrase that. Uh, you get stock from your employer. Uh, you can make this eighty three b election. you could pay tax now on the make your basis the fair market value essentially, and then whatever it grows to after the fact would not be taxable. I think that's what they're trying to get at. Well, you're
0: going to have yeah. to well, you're not going to have to pay tax when it vests, right? What you're doing is you're basically saying, hey, that, that's on options. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that you're investing in an IPO, pre- IPO. So I go reg D, I put money into a company. Is there any tax implication to doing that at all? Uh, There shouldn't be, I'm not too sure. Right, so I invest, it's it's no different than buying Microsoft shares. I don't get any deduction for the purchase. Now, I sit there and it grows to be worth $10 million or your Elon Musk, $20 billion, 30, what do you do, he's worth 200 billion or some ridiculous amount now, right? So let's just say that it grows to be worth a substantial amount, $50 million. You put in, let's just say you put in half a million bucks. You can always take back out the half a million bucks. No tax, that's your basis. You go above that, it's long-term capital gains. So you're gonna have to pay tax on it at some point for some reason. There's very few little exceptions and the exceptions could be if you are in a qualified opportunity zone and you use deferred money and you hold it for longer than 10 years and more than 50% of the employees are in that opportunity zone and it goes public, then technically you could avoid tax on that up until what year? 2025, like you could reset the basis, 2045, yeah, 2045. So there's one way to do it. If it's in a retirement plan like a Roth, you would never pay tax on it. Trying to think of anything else that that could possibly be there. There are some small business stock, which that wouldn't work because it's if you're taking it as an IPO. So I don't see another way to do it are you sure about staking versus being active income? I am not using my computer for that. Unlike mining, it is staked, meaning deposited on a server in a website run by a third party. I'd have to look at that. So I'll, you know what, Tarun, if you would be so kind as to email in your question at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com, Patty will get you that. And uh, and I'll, I'll I'll dig into it a little bit because crypto has been kind of the wild, wild west for taxes for a little bit and I'll make sure. I'll make sure that I can get your question answered. All right, anyway, so we put money into a stock. Anytime we buy a capital asset, we're not writing it off. We're just buying it unless there's a depreciation schedule tied to it. If somebody says I'd be, what we'll do is we'll we'll try to take that and I'll, I might use that as one of the questions at the next Tax Tuesday. So uh, the crypto stuff always gets some gets chattering. All right, next one. When it comes to business expenses, do you have to provide the IRS receipts or can you provide your business bank account statements? In regards to food expenses, does it need to be food purchased from restaurants or can, be, can it be food purchased at the grocery store? When it comes to these write-offs, does the IRS differentiate between the two?
1: All right, well, first things first, you actually have to get examined before you're gonna need to provide it to them. So there's that. But they're gonna want the receipts on the bank account because the bank account's not gonna sell them what you actually spent at the vendor. Let's just go show you the amount. So you would need the receipt to show what you actually bought.
0: Okay. So unless it's, if it's food, unless it's under 75 bucks, you don't need anything for 75 bucks. Right. Right. It's just, if it's meals and entertainment, no entertainment, if it's meals, number one, hundred percent deduction this year, if you go to a restaurant, so you'd need to show that it's a restaurant. So Mm you need the receipt for that. Right. If it's other things and you're buying food for the office, et cetera, it might be 50% deduction. Right. It's like we buy stuff at Mm -hmm. Costco all the time. Right. We get, 50% 50% deduction, even if it's for the convenience of the employees. So you'd want to be able to do that. But under no circumstances, when you do your taxes, do you need to give the receipt with your return? You're holding these things and keeping them. When do you have to show the IRS a receipt? When you get uh, examined under audit, essentially. So. How many of you people are getting audited right now? Pretty much none. That's like, what do we have last year? Less than 10? Something like that.
1: Yeah. Just, just be smart. That's really the big thing.
0: Yeah. So you don't have to, don't freak out. I actually did this when I first got into business at a little paint company, and I sent them all my receipts. I was like, paranoid, was, they're gonna come lock me up. My dad had me so freaked out about the IRS. I was like, waiting for him to show up at the in my bedroom, like, son, you didn't. I would, I sent them all my receipts, because I was an idiot. So I just saw the Republicans get out of it. Only for starting up a charity. Now, that stopped years ago. Lois Lerner, she's not in there anymore, is she? How many are gonna be audited? The IRS just dedicated 80 million to auditing. Uh, It's almost like, you know who gets audited? And I can back this up with the IRS data book. If you make less than $25,000, there's a good chance you're gonna get audited. If you take the earned income tax credit, there's a good chance you're gonna get audited. If you make over a million bucks, it's very rare. If you're making something in between, very rare. If you're a sole proprietor, you're about a 500% increase over your, your brethren to getting audited. It's like, we can see who gets audited. What we know is who doesn't. S-corps, partnerships, people making a lot of money, people just normal returns. They're in the toilet. It literally looks like this. When you look at the chart over the last 10 years, that's because the IRS is losing employees. Do you know how many they've lost?
1: I don't know the number, but I can tell it's a lot based on the wait times to call in. So
0: How long does it take? Wait line. Professional
1: hotline. I don't even bother trying to call in during the day. I usually call after five when most people are going home. So,
0: mm-hmm. But how long is it like you sometimes have to uh, sit? 15 to
1: 30 minutes, at least usually.
0: Yeah. And we used to actually have somebody that would dial in during the day and they were a dedicated mm-hmm. dialer and they would just yeah. sit there and sit on hold. And then you'd come in with your list of questions. Right. It was silly. Yeah. No, I wouldn't be worried. And initial jobless claims, lowest point since 1969, are unemployment rates for what was it? 4.1%. It's hard as heck to find people here in Vegas. They have, pe- they have businesses that can't even stay open all seven days a week, uh, restaurants, et cetera, they're having to close because they don't have enough employees. So I don't know where they're gonna find 80,000 people to, that are competent to do
1: audits, but. We're having trouble finding accounts, period, so.
0: Mm-hmm. The rates, salary rates and everything else are following inflation even more. Somebody says, I'm available, reach out to us, please. <laughs> We hire an all four, we have 49 states now that we have people in. So if you're a good accountant and you understand business tax, we will train the heck out of anybody. Uh, if you have the aptitude, if you have any friends, send them our way because uh, we literally, what we had to turn off accounting for about three, four months last year. We yeah. couldn't even, we just, nobody could come in. We weren't taking any business. So then you say, well, why are you doing Tax Tuesday? <laughs> it's like, because we love helping people. Yep. So you just, you're always, you're always, you're always looking. Hey guys, uh, real quick. This is obvious slide to go to YouTube. And if you like this type of information, come in. I think we're posting the videos of a lot of the previous Tax Tuesdays. We cut them into pieces and put them out there on YouTube. But also we have an event coming up. Patty, do we have the link to, to go to the event this weekend? On Saturday, I'm teaching another Infinity Investing Workshop. If you've never been to an Infinity Investing Workshop, wrote a book called Infinity Investing. It was bestseller on Google, yay. But what it really is, is helping people generate income uh, just because we look at our tax returns of all of our clients. And we're always looking to see what people are doing that consistently make money. And what what we found is that it's kind of the boring stuff. It's it's really putting your hand, right hand under your right butt cheek. I'll do my own. (laughs) Taking your left hand, putting it under your left butt cheek. That's what you do in investing sometimes and you sit on them, right? And you just try not to do anything. While the the rest of the world's going nuts, you just stay calm and have a long view, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years out, and you'll be amazed at how successful you are just because you didn't do anything. There we go with the butt cheeks again. Don't be a hater, Sherry. My hands, I keep them warm that way. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's really good book. And if I may say so myself, because it took so long to write, wrote it with, published by Forbes, Uh, but what it really comes down to is it's helping a lot of the younger people who have kind of lost some hope in this world. You're like, no, 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 it is possible. The American dream is still alive and well and getting out there. Something says, uh, I called the IRS a few times about an inquiry. The IRS automated system simply suggested that they were not taking calls for the issues and hung up on me.
1: Uh, Try calling in at the, it opens up at 7 a.m. your local time every morning from Monday through Friday, and it closes at 7 p.m. So try calling either earlier or try calling in later.
0: Let's see, somebody says they finally got you to smile. All I gotta say is butt cheeks. Oh, who's the guest? It's Ian, one of our tax managers and a really good guy. Tell him to have a hot seat, see? Thank you, there we go. You did a really great job today, sir. All right, if you have any questions, uh, send them in, Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Visit us at AndersonAdvisors.com as well. but uh, send in your questions. We get hundreds a week. We try to answer them all. And then they flag a bunch and we pick, I usually just go down the list and say, here's 10, 15 questions. I've been much better this year. We used to go two hours every one of these. And they always say it's an hour. We're actually hitting it. We're allowed to do about 10. After that, they literally cut them off because I'm not known for going short. If you have any other questions, we've they answered. Get this. Do you see that? Hey. 140 questions. There are still 20 questions open, which I am shocked at with the number of people we have. But they answered 140 questions, and I get to say, where could you get accountants to help you without giving you that big old nasty bill? Other than right here at Tax Tuesday. So by all means, share this with your friends. We love getting all the the uh, the, the questions. It helps us keep our uh, blades sharp and uh, lets us know what's going on out there and what's really important to people. And uh, we always learn something. I always learn something. Listen to Ian and uh, not from Jeff so much, but from
1: Ian, Jeff. You know, he's not here and we finished before four so maybe it's a sign.
0: He's sometimes a chatty Kathy. Sometimes a chatty Kathy. Don't tell Jeff. He's on his honeymoon. He's busy. He's busy right now. Well, maybe not right now. It's getting old. Just kidding. All right, guys. Thanks again. And we will see you in, uh, in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are
1: already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.